Well, if you're new with us, this is the highlight of our morning, the opportunity to open God's Word and to dig into it together. And uh, it is an inexhaustible resource, a mine that we could never go to the bottom of. And uh, each time we dip our bucket back in, there's more living water to uh, nourish us and to bless us and to call us to what we are. Um, Our pastor was here several weekends ago, Pastor Wickham from college, and I have still been, uh, the statement that he made is still resonating in my mind that constantly scripture calls us to be what we are. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is an exercise in the Lord reminding us to live out what we are. And uh, it's just been a great study. It, um, it's been a convicting study for my own life, and I trust it's been for yours, those of you who have been with us, and that God is doing his continual work. I was thinking as well as David was praying and reading the scriptures, and sometimes we read in Genesis 29, and we're kind of struggling to know how that works out in our lives. Um, Jacob marrying Leah by accident and then getting Rachel And we're kind of thinking, okay, now, Lord, what do you want from me from this? Um, How can I apply this to my own life? And the reality is David prayed the truth, and that is all the way through the accounts of Genesis, all the way through the Torah, and all the way through our Old Testaments and even into our New Testament accounts, God has been faithful to be carrying out what he promised to do. And we have put on display for us sinful characters that God in his providence and in his sovereignty is using to accomplish his plan. And I can assure you this morning that he is at work in your life accomplishing what he promised you if you're in fact in Christ. In fact, Romans chapter 8 is a promise that is for us this morning. And uh, I wasn't planning to do this, but I've been thinking about this. Romans chapter 8 is one of those common passages uh, where we know a certain verse, but maybe not the verses surrounding it. In verse Romans 8:28, this is one of those verses that you've known. Seems like when you came to Christ, all of a sudden you just had this memorized, okay? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And here is a promise for us this morning that all things work together for good. And and sometimes that brings a question, the promise brings a question, how in the world can that be true? If you'd have been a part of my week this week, There's no way this would ring as true in your heart and mind. And maybe that's what you're thinking. You're looking at me and saying, well, Adam, if if you'd have been a part of our circumstances, you'd find this a little bit of a challenge. Well, let me assure you, this is exactly what God is doing. And we find in the beginning of verse 29, "For for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and usually we just get hung up right there. We start going down the predestination trail of our thoughts, and yet we're going to miss the good that is in all things. What did God predestine his children to be? To be conformed to the image of his son. And so our time this morning, or your life this past week, or what is about to happen in this week, is all a part of God faithfully keeping his promises to you. And one of the primary promises that he has made to you is that each and every part of your life will be another step of Him conforming you to the image of His Son for His own glory. Isn't that rich? Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that sustaining? And whether you are in the hardest of trials or whether you are in the highest of blessings in your life, God is utilizing each and every activity. He even utilized Laban's deception with Leah and Rachel. He even utilized Jacob's sin in deceiving his father. He utilized and used and worked all of those things for the good of his own people to conform them to what he had planned for them, and that is the image of his son. And that's what we're attempting to bring to mind when we come to Matthew chapter 6. We're actually interacting with the Lord Jesus, uh, who we are uh, desperately desiring to be conformed into his image. All right, so Matthew chapter 6 this morning, that's the first time since we have uh, launched into the major portion of the Sermon on the Mount, that we have switched chapters. We've been in Matthew 5 for for months. And so it's a blessing to go to Matthew chapter 6 this morning, and you can make your way there if you're not there already. All of you are quite aware, as I am, of the feeling of getting duped by a con man, or a con woman for that matter, by getting suckered into something 
to where you believe one thing is true and then in the backside you find out that that's actually not true at all. Whether you bought a sweet pair of Oakley sunglasses in New York City and you thought for sure you were getting the deal of the century from this guy who jumped out of a van, opened a whole box of Oakleys and said, 10 bucks. You're going, wow, I'm doing the math here. Those are $150. And you bought them only by the time you got home and the paint was already scratching off of where the O was for Oakley did you realize that you had been duped, you'd been conned. Maybe you got suckered into the ultimate con, and if this is one of you, then we'll need to talk afterward, but the ultimate con man, which is the used car salesman. And he convinced you that the deal that was too good to be true was good. And so once you got into that car and you spent your first several miles in that car, you found out that actually it wasn't good, it was too good to be true, and you have the pit in your stomach of knowing I just committed to something because I believed one thing to be true, when in fact the opposite was true. Maybe you've bought into a get-rich-quick scheme. You've dumped money into the potential of getting rich fast, and you've been left with the awareness at the end of the day that only one person gets rich quick from get-rich-quick schemes. That's the person who's telling you about the get-rich-quick scheme. They're receiving your get-rich-quick money. And that is such a disconcerting awareness for us. There's nothing that rips away our confidence in an individual than an uneasy awareness that we don't totally know where that person's coming from. They're saying one thing, but their credibility is in doubt. What we find in Matthew chapter 6 this morning is not so much at a human level, it's not at an earthly level, but this is dealing in particular with the kingdom of heaven and kingdom credibility. And that's what we're going to title this morning. It's just a quick look at kingdom credibility. What is it to be genuine about your pursuit of the kingdom? And that is the concern that the Lord Jesus brings to those hearers on the side of the mountain so many years ago, and that is the same concern he brings now to those of you who are his people, who are a part of his kingdom. Not unlike the remainder of the sermon, Jesus is concerned first and foremost with who you are, and then secondarily with what you do. And in this case, when we move into chapter 6, in particular these first three sections of chapter 6, We're going to have religious responsibilities that were common to the Jewish people placed in front of the Jewish people, and Jesus is going to confront them again and again and again with their heart when they come to these activities. Jesus is constantly concerned with his hearers understanding that the external practices of the Pharisees of their religious system were not good enough for the kingdom. Remember, back in chapter 5, in verse 20, he told them, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then we studied last week, at the very end of the paragraph last week, these profound words, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so Jesus is clearly communicating to his hearers, and he's clearly, I trust, communicating to your heart, that the standard of righteousness for those who would be in the kingdom is not merely an external activity. Let me break that down to today. It is not merely a churchianity. It's not a Sunday Christianity. The kingdom is a lifestyle that is generated from verses 3 through 10 in Matthew 5 with a new transformed heart, a character that has been transformed by God's grace. That character will be seen in an influence on the world that results in a salt and light effect. And then in chapter 5, in the remainder of that chapter, that internal reality, that transformation of the character will be fleshed out then in obedience to the standard placed on us by our King and in total dependence upon Him for the grace needed to accomplish that obedience. So to take any part of the Sermon on the Mount And to say, I'm just in a generic fashion going to apply this to my life. And we're coming up on one of those in chapter 6. We're going to get to the golden rule. And the golden rule is a fallacy unless we understand what chapter 5 communicates about the heart and the character of those who are in the kingdom. 
We cannot live out what we'll see today or what we've seen in weeks past or what we'll find to the, to the end of this sermon without the transformation that only Christ can bring. Now, we're going to only study one verse this morning. And, and I understand the ratio in your mind ought to be if last week we studied five verses and it took us 62 minutes, then with one verse, you know, you calculators out there are working that down, we should be done in approximately, what, 12 minutes? Don't get settled in for 12 minutes because we need to focus on what's here. We'll take a little deeper look, a little closer look at verse 1 to set the table for us. But we're only going to study Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. So let's read that together. Beware, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Okay, maybe you saw that on the front of your bulletin, but that verse just alone is convicting. Because really what it does is it calls into question what we just finished doing. And so here we have one of the most uh, pointed and in-your-face warnings that we could ever receive, and it comes from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus here makes a call in the form of a warning for his kingdom citizens. This is the beware sign that guards the front gate of the kingdom. If you walk through the front gate of the kingdom, right after you get through, you find a beware sign. It's not beware of dog. It's beware of hypocrisy. That's the warning sign. And this is one that challenges us in every way. In particular, in our culture, this challenges our own heart and our own kingdom credibility. You're all very familiar with beware of dog signs plastered all over people's property. We, when we were first married, lived in a little apartment in Newhall, California. And across the street from our apartment, there was a house with a fence. And on the fence, they had multiple beware of dog signs. And we knew that to cross into that fence, to go across into the gate, was to take on a certain level of danger. And folks, if we have been brought into the kingdom through new birth, there has come with that entrance a particular danger that we must be aware of as we enter through this gate. Unfortunately for us, the people in Newhall didn't keep their gates closed. So their beware of dog signs could have been plastered all over our neighborhood. Uh, as Renee and I found out one night, Rottweiler stood us down in the street. And uh, I was scared and whimpering inside and being all tough and manly on the outside. And uh, thankfully, we lived through that. But there was danger at every corner. Okay, so here's what we're going to do this morning. Just to divide this up, I don't think this is going to be difficult for us to grasp. But we're going to see three components of this warning from God for his kingdom citizens to be credible. There is three components. There are three components that we'll find, and they are all right on the surface of verse 1 in chapter 6. All right, if you're a note taker, I can give you a, uh, a preview to what we're going to do. We're going to see, first of all, a typical setting. So we have warning, colon, a typical setting. And then secondly, a temporal motive, which is really the heart of the problem. And then finally, we'll see the third component is a tragic result. So the three components are a typical setting, a temporal motive, and a tragic result. And I think that these will help us, at least I hope they'll help us, to hang the truth of what we find in verse 1 as we seek to not only remember this, but to renew our minds so that we can be changed by the Word of God this morning. So let's begin then with beware in verse 1, beware, here's the warning, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. There is a typical setting in which the kingdom citizen, which you and which I, will face a particular danger. And it is extremely typical. You know how I know it's typical? Because you're all here. And I saw many of your faces last week. And you saw my face last week if you were here. And the week before that, and the week before that, and the week before that. And this is a routine. And there is a typical place where there will be a particular danger for you if you are in the kingdom. There will be a place where it will be a battle for you to keep your heart in line with what you are 
as a kingdom citizen. Now notice in the first part here, maybe your translation is a little bit different, but beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. This is your translator's way and our translator's way of trying to help us see a distinction between the righteousness that is demanded of us or the heading of righteousness that must be stamped across our lives and the practical outworking of that righteousness in our daily existence. Right? So this is helping us see a distinction. Those words are not there. There's just simply beware of your righteousness before other people. The idea here is the practical outworking of your righteousness, and we know that because the remaining paragraphs in this section deal with almsgiving, and they deal with prayer, and they deal with fasting. Okay, So this is practical, religious experience for the kingdom citizen. There's warning in that setting. And in today's church and in today's culture, there is a very typical setting. We know when we're to look like, talk like, and act like the kingdom citizens. Do we not? Many of you, like myself, battle on any given week with walking in here and being what you have not been for the previous 20 minutes. There is an amazing transformation that happens from like parking lot all the way to the steps. Things just get better. By the time we get inside the door and we see Dick and Irene and we get our bulletin, we're rolling. I mean, we're, we're walking in the Lord, man. We are here and we're excited about it. And if we could go back just a matter of seconds, that's anything but what was happening in our vehicle. That's anything but what was happening in our home. We battle with the typical routine of religion, not unlike the Jewish people who were listening to Jesus here on the side of the hill. This is a difficulty for us. And the righteousness that's demanded in 520 that we just read a few minutes ago is an internal reality that is produced by God in his people. And the reality of practical righteousness that we see in 6.1 is the fruit of what has been done. And so when we are engaged in living out what has been done on the inside, we must be aware of danger. Is that helpful? That means that when we start singing, when we start praying corporately, when we start doing the things that flow from the transformation of our hearts, we should be seeing warning signs. We should be prepped and ready that there is danger. It's just like walking through the gate in Newhall and your eyes are looking for Rottweilers. You're not just looking. You would hear any motion, any movement, because you know there's danger in the yard. Folks, when we come to our practical living out of righteousness, there is danger. This is a typical setting that we all in the kingdom will be a part of. Yet Christ calls us to a careful, a careful approach. Righteousness, as we've already discussed, has both the internal and the external component, and both must be a part of our thinking. Now, what are the implications of just that simple First phrase, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. There is a way, here's what's implied, there is a way that you could practice righteous actions that would be a danger to your spiritual growth. Have you thought about that? There is a way that we could live out righteous behavior that would be a danger to us as we develop and are conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is actually external activities that look just like the other external activities that someone else is doing that are found in the same Sermon on the Mount or that are found in the same New Testament that could lead one down a path of danger and could be leading the other one down a path of blessing. That's the implication from this section. And that is a very challenging implication. Because it calls on us to be alert, to have our eyes open, to be aware that we are in a setting where danger exists. Not only that, but the other implication is all the more troubling. Because if this deadly form of righteousness, if this is all that you have, folks, this is is sad and this is scary. But if this is all you bring, 
to the judgment. You will spend an eternity apart from God. If all you bring to the table is an external form of righteousness, then you will spend an eternity apart from God in a literal existence of hell. This is where the hypocrites, which is what we'll see continually through chapter 6, that phrase, the hypocrites, the hypocrites look like the real thing, they talk like the real thing, they act like the real thing, and yet they're not the real thing. And God knows what's real and what's not. And so he warns us, he warns his kingdom citizens, you are in potential danger. And if you somehow have in your mind that you're going to keep chapter 5, that you're going to put it on yourself, then you are in immense danger because you are in the highest level of self Deception. There is nothing more deceiving than the one who believes that they are okay when they are not okay. There's nothing more tragic than talking to someone who believes that they're standing before God is in the right place and it's not. What else could be more deceiving than to go through our lives with some sense of I'm doing righteousness and yet we find out that all we've been doing is what we find in verse 1. And that is all we have. And at the end of the day, if that is all we have, it will not do for the kingdom. Those are the implications of what we find here. And then there's this little phrase there at the end of the first uh, portion of the verse. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And this is the sphere in which this particular danger is apparent. Okay, so when is it that you need to be very much alert to danger? It's not just when you have an opportunity to live out your transformed heart. It's not just when you have the opportunity to live out righteousness rather than wickedness. It's when you have the opportunity to do either one of those things in front of other people. That's where this danger lies. This is where it gets very, very dangerous for the kingdom citizen. Why is this such a critical care for the hearers of Jesus teaching on the mountain? Why is this such a critical understanding for us to have as Grace Church? For those who have gathered to worship with Grace Church this morning, it's critical because it's right here in the presence of others that this danger exists. We were talking this morning, Marty and I, about what to do with our sign. We've got this great green curtain that we've never had before. Uh... A very expensive green curtain, by the way, fire, fireproof and other things. But we're so grateful to have that, but they took down our connectors so we don't have this massive sign saying our church name on it anymore. What do we do with that? Maybe one of the options for what to do next is to put big beware signs up in front so that when we walk in the door, we're consciously aware of the fact that we've just entered the danger zone. We've also just entered the most blessed time of our week. This is great. This is exciting. We're with God's people. Many of you spend your week apart from God's people, working with those who don't know Christ, who do not share your worldview. You have a tremendous opportunity to put Christ on display for them. And when you come on Sundays, this is your time to be with your family. And that's right. It's also a time of tremendous danger. It's in this setting that we find this particular challenge for us. We find ourselves tempted tempted with a very special and unique temptation. That brings us to the second component of this warning from Jesus. Not only is there a typical setting, but we find in this next phrase there is a very temporal motive that characterizes this danger for the kingdom citizen. Not only do we see a typical setting, which is the opportunity to practice our righteousness before other people, which is what we're going to see in these next paragraphs. But also we see now that the motivation is what makes this dangerous. There's these three little words that you'll find in the next phrase that are crucial. If you're starting to really get to an inductive Bible study method, you need to start noticing these words. These are important for you. So that, in order that, but, contrastive words, Words that help you start to put the components of a sentence together. And right here in the middle of verse 6, we find beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to. 
Here's a purpose. Here's the reason why you're doing what you're doing. This is where the danger strikes. This is where it smacks us right in the face. This is right up in our kitchen. Hardcore. In order to be seen by them. There is a motive that will destroy your opportunity for public display of the internal transformation that Christ has brought. There is a danger, folks. There's a danger for me. There's a danger right now. Right now, there's a danger. There's a danger for me at this moment. There's a danger for you. There has been danger in the moments previously as we have done things corporately together, as we have practiced what we see in our New Testaments as the pattern for the local church. There's danger. This was no doubt a slap directly aimed at the Pharisees of the Jewish religious system, right? I mean, there's nobody who cared more about what people thought than the Pharisees. They cared so much that they wanted to wear certain clothes that would make them stand out. Uh, They wanted to have special seats so that people could see them. And if they wanted to go do something like giving alms, we remember that story, don't we? We have this picture of Jesus in the temple. He's watching, and here comes the proud Pharisees making a public display of their righteous deeds, quote-unquote. Jesus is definitely attacking the Pharisees. In fact, in 2015, we'll come to chapter 23 in Matthew. And thank you for those six of you who laughed at that. The rest of you were like, oh man, that's a long time. Chapter 23 of Matthew, we find... Uh, This statement from Jesus, I don't want to give away the whole picture here, but Jesus said to the crowd and to all his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So they sit in leadership. So practice and observe whatever they tell you. Because of their office, you are to respect them. But not what they do. this This is harsh. This is our Lord speaking the truth. You need to do what they tell you because they communicate to you in authority. But do not do what they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That is, they're not willing to pick up their pinky finger to do anything. Verse 5 is crucial. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. for They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and it talks about their clothing. The Pharisees were marked out as the superstars of hypocrisy. If you were wanting to be a hypocrite, you were going to get one of these on your wall. You wanted to have a picture of your main Pharisee. This is the guy I'm modeling my life after. And Jesus is no doubt attacking them, even as some of them would have been in that crowd. But he addresses a particular danger that is particularly focused on our motive. And that is what is really tough for us in this setting. It's the motive that Jesus is so concerned about. Here's the fatal motivation that makes public righteousness such a minefield for you and I as kingdom citizens. This is what makes it dangerous, folks, is that if our mindset changes and our attention changes from living out the transformation of our lives, God has done a work in us. We want to show forth His character. If the motivation changes from wanting Him to be glorified, for others to see Him put on display, to see the life of Christ lived out in our lives, subtly over to, and while they're glorifying God, I hope they remember it was me that did this. And that's like the best version, right? The worst version is, I don't really care what God thinks, I just hope that the other people see me do this. I hope they think good thoughts about They've got to be thinking I'm spiritual. I mean, have you seen how many pages of notes I take? I mean, they've got to be seeing me. I'm sitting here on the row. There's nobody else taking notes. They've got to be noticing that I'm taking a lot. This is the most tragic, deceptive danger for us in public practicing of righteousness. We could put warning signs over our entrance here at Grace Church. We don't need to think too hard to know that this is a reality in our own lives, right? Let's just be real open. Let's just be family. This is real. This is where we live. This is where we've lived in the last half an hour. This is where we've lived in the last hour. This is where we live week to week. 
One moment, we're God-centered and we're God-glorifying, and then in a split second, seemingly without any transition, we go from being God-centered and God-glorifying to being man-centered and self-glorifying. It can be right in the middle of prayer. And what we started doing was communicating with our Heavenly Father through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us, who mediates for us. And by the time we get 30 seconds into the prayer, we're suddenly more concerned about something temporal or what people are seeing us do or what they're thinking about us. I remember in college, I could have used illustrations that were like from yesterday, but I decided to go to college. That makes it feel like it's back there. So I remember in college, we had, I went to a Christian university, and we had prayer rooms in our dormitories downstairs. And I can remember uh, dealing with certain things in my life and really wanting God to give direction. And I wanted to focus my attention on what his word had to say and give my heart directly to him so that he would, he would, the spirit would be leading me. And uh, I would go down to the prayer room. And somewhere between the first floor and the basement, by the time I got to the prayer room, I was thinking, am I going to kneel or sit in the prayer room? And you think, well, why are you thinking that? Well, because by the time I got there, I wondered what the other people would think if they came in and saw Bales. That was my nickname in college. They saw Bales in there in the prayer room. First of all, they've got to be thinking good things about me because I'm in the prayer room. But how much more spiritual would I appear if I was actually on my knees in the prayer room? But then in my thought processes, I was like, well, my knees hurt. That's going to hurt. Am I willing to pay the price of pain for the sake of... You, you see how fast this goes, folks? And that's like from way back. This hasn't stopped. This is a battle that we all engage in when we come to the practice of our righteousness. This can be the gravest danger in our own public worship services right here at Grace Church, as well as in any other public setting where you get the opportunity to carry out a righteous activity. Now, be careful. Be careful with verse 1 that you don't conclude that any righteousness done in front of other people is forbidden, or that somehow there is only private righteousness that God is concerned about, and any public display of the transformation of your heart is somehow out of order. It is not. You remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 16? Let your light so shine before men. Before men. That's the exact same words that we find here. Before men. Why? So that they might glorify your Father which is in heaven. You have... Two statements that are seemingly contradictory. Live out, be a light before other men. Don't practice your righteousness before men. Well, you say, well, what, how does this pan out? How does this come together? It comes together in the motive. The motive in chapter 5, verse 16 is for God to receive glory. And the motive in chapter 6, verse 1, is for you to receive the glory. It is to be done, our righteousness, in a way that matches the character of our king and his kingdom. So be careful. This warning does not negate or contradict Jesus' earlier instruction in chapter 5. Now, I know that we're already in that weird, uncomfortable, invading the personal space level. Okay, I'm aware of it. I feel it. I feel awkward saying it. I feel awkward talking to you about this. Um, I've felt awkward all week as I've engaged my own heart with this. I felt awkward when I gave my wife the front verse for the bulletin, knowing that that's going to be right in front of us this morning. But let me ask us just a couple more awkward questions. As we seek to apply this and to examine this danger in our own lives, this typical setting is universal to us, but now let's ask ourselves about our motivation. How often are we more aware of our temporal audience than we are of our eternal audience. How often are we more aware of those around us than we are of the one with whom we will stand before in judgment? How much of our preparation for public worship speaks to our concern for God's perspective on us? And how much of our preparation for public worship speaks to our concern for others' perspective on us? 
I was talking to David this morning before we came over to the services, and he just said, oh, you are not going to go there. He said, you are not, but I am. How much reflection, no pun intended, would we gain by valuing our time before the mirror that we utilize so that others would see us in a particular way versus the mirror of God's word that would set our hearts in line so that God would see us in a certain way? How concerned are we on Saturday evenings or Sunday mornings to set our hearts in order because we are not practicing righteousness before men so that they see us. We're not carrying out a ritual. We're not carrying out a credit-earning, merit-earning work. We are coming before the living God of the universe because His Son has died to rescue us from our sin and by faith He has transformed us. So we come to bring hearts that are full before Him to sing to Him, to pray to Him, to listen to Him, to study His Word, to love on His people. All of those things, if that's what we're here for, how much work did we put into preparing for that? Or how much work, in contrast, if what we're here for is to be seen by others, to carry out, yes, a well-intended ritual, Yes, to be a part of the fellowship of the church, but how much did we prepare for others to see us? And that really is the first priority. There is a temporal motive that condemns a typical setting of righteousness. And those who are in the kingdom, Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, must beware of this danger because it is lurking right around the corner. These are tough, tough questions for us to ask ourselves. And they are convicting questions for my own heart and my own life. And I know for yours as well. And this isn't a stop clock issue, folks. It's not like you need to be taking account and writing down in your notebook, well, I did 20 minutes on Saturday night. I read some passages and I prayed. And then on Sunday morning, I spent another half an hour. And then I read some Psalms. And that adds up to, ah, I got 55 minutes and I got a shower in 10, and I got dressed really quick, and so it ended up being a 55 to 35 ratio. Perfect. I'm coming, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to live out what the Sermon on the Mount teaches me. Absolutely not. That would be exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is attacking. It's not about a stop clock issue. It's about a heart and a motivation that flows from a transformation that has been brought about in you. You are poor in spirit. You have been brought to mourning over your sin. You are merciful because God has shown you mercy. And when you come to His place with His people to worship Him, you're there for that reason. And it's reflected in your preparation. It's reflected in your heart. It's reflected in the songs that you sang in the car on the way here. It's reflected in the way you sang when you were here. It's reflected in the way you engaged in prayer. It's all a reflection of what God has done. That's what the kingdom will be, folks. The kingdom will be, for eternity, us living out what God has done. His will will be done, just like it is in heaven, right here on the new earth. We will be obedient in perfection. We will be worshiping in fullness. Because we will no longer be corrupted by the principle of sin. We'll no longer be in danger of this danger. So how much more should we set our attention today and in the weeks ahead to preparing for the kingdom? Let's live in kingdom reality now so that we're practiced up and we're ready and we're excited for the appearing of our Lord. Why is it, why is it that we struggle to be excited and anticipate the appearing of our Lord Jesus? Because we don't live today as if the kingdom is real. We live today as if Only what we see, only the temporal, only the now, only the approval of men is important. The fear of man will always lead us to a trap, leads us to a snare. Proverbs 29, 25. So we have a typical setting we've got to be careful in, and we're sitting in it right now. There are other settings that fall into this category. We have a very temporal motive that is the problem. It is the danger. It is the Rottweiler, if you will, in the yard that we've got to be watching, we've got to be looking at our motive, we've got to be laying our heart before the Lord. And then thirdly, the third component in the conclusion of this verse is the most um, 
the most heavy, I think, of all of them. The third component is the tragic result. What happens when this danger gets us? Well, we find these two little words that come after that comma. In order to be seen by them, comma, for then, here's your result, here's your conclusion, for then, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now we see the tragic end to a formal, external, or merely external righteousness. There is no reward from your Father in heaven. The kingdom is concerned about your heart, even when public righteousness is discussed. Folks, we cannot squirm out from underneath of this. We must not. Because this is so much a part of what we struggle with And this result is so tragic that we must battle, we must hold ourselves down close to the fire of God's Word and allow it to purify us, allow it to renew our minds, to bring with it a renewing of our thinking about our lives. It's a heart issue. What's the end of the externalist approach to religion? What's the end of your existence if all you have is a life that pursued the approval and the praise of men and women around you, well, you have everything you're going to get when it comes to reward. Because there will be no reward to match that when you enter the judgment before the Father who is in heaven. For the kingdom citizen, they will be shortcutted. They will be abbreviated in their opportunity to glory in the rewards that Christ will give for those who have lived faithfully Independence upon him. Now this is going to be the theme, just to set the context for you. We're actually looking forward with this verse as much as we're looking back. This is going to be the theme that we find over and over and over again. In fact, look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 6. Talking about giving, verse 4 says, so that your giving may be in secret. Uh, verse 3 talked about not doing, doing things that your left hand, so it doesn't know what your right hand's doing. So that your giving may be in secret. And then here's this little sentence that concludes verse 4. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. In other words, don't do this for the external reward because your father is capable of seeing in secret and he'll reward you for what he sees. Verse 6, talking about prayer. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Over in verse 18. Verse 17 says, But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the contrast between those who live in the temporal and those who live in the eternal. This is the contrast between the one whose mind is set on things below and the one whose mind is set on things above. This is the difference between the the person in Ecclesiastes who lives their life under the sun And the conclusion of Ecclesiastes with the one who lives their life in awareness of what is above the sun, which is the fear of God. This is the tragic result. There will be a loss of reward for the kingdom citizen who does his public righteousness for the sake of being noticed by others. If it is done in a wrong motive, it will be eternally wasted for its temporal motive will receive only a temporal reward. Now, we don't have time this morning to launch into a full discussion of the judgment that will result at the end of our lives. Uh, Hebrews 9, verse 26 tells us, It's appointed unto man once to die. Unless we are taken because Christ returns, we will all die. And after we die, there is judgment. Whether we are saved or whether we are unsaved, whether we are kingdom citizens or whether we are citizens of this world, we will be judged. One judgment for those who are lost will be the doling out of the punishment that is theirs because of their rebellious sin against God. That judgment will be a weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It will be a utter disruptive time. It will be the awareness for those who have lived in deception. Matthew 7 says, depart from me, I never knew you. But there will be another judgment 
That will be the judgment for God's people, which will be a reward judgment, not a punishment. Folks, I don't know if this is news to you, and we don't have time to walk all the way through this, but there won't be a screen in heaven. Nobody will watch all that you've done in your life, let alone the whole kingdom watching everything you've done in your life. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe that's been the fear tactic. If God put up a screen and showed your life, what would we see? Well, he's not going to, thankfully, because no condemnation comes to those who are in Christ. And yet every work that we have done, every idle word that we have spoken, everything that we have accomplished that was not sinful will be put to the fiery test of the righteousness of Christ and what is done in dependence and faith in Him will be rewarded. And what is not done in faith and dependence on Him, what is done to be seen by others, what is done in our fleshly power, will be wasted. What an amazing God we serve. He intersects our lives. He rescues us from our sin. He provides His Son as our substitute. He places within us eyes that can see and ears that can hear. He brings life when we're dead. He then gives us the grace through the cross and the gospel to live in obedience to Him, to bring glory and honor to Him. And when we do it, He rewards us for it. And we find that the elders at the throne will do exactly what we will do with those rewards. They throw them back at the Lamb and they say, worthy is the Lamb to receive the honor and the glory for what has been accomplished. What is the tragedy of the result of this danger, this hypocrisy within the kingdom? It is the removal of reward for the public displays of the character of the kingdom citizen because they have done so with a motive that has been anything but in keeping with the character of their king. So the kingdom citizen must beware. Dangers lurking. And when righteousness and the principle of sin hit together, which is our lives, right? The principle of sin is there, Romans 7. What we want to do, we don't do. What we do want to do, we don't do. And when you're battling with your sinfulness and you have opportunity to publicly display the righteousness that God has worked within you, look out. Because those two things don't go together. And you will be in danger of allowing the principle of sin to deceive you into thinking that you are somehow keeping righteousness. You are somehow doing enough. You are externally keeping what is required of you. And the end will be a removal of an eternal reward that God desires to give to you as his child. This is our danger. This is our beware sign just inside the gates of the kingdom. The results of failure to take Jesus' warning seriously are eternal in their nature, and they are tragic. So, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us at the end of Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1? We've got this typical setting where most of us are experienced. We've got a temporal motive which all of us are aware of in our own lives. And then in conclusion, we have a tragic result that will come if we do not take notice, if we are not cautious to the point of turning from sinfulness and focusing our attention solely on our Lord himself, who sees in secret and will reward. So warnings in Scripture, like this one, are always opportunities for growth, aren't they? They're always opportunities. When we're sitting on a Sunday and we encounter Matthew 6, 1, we have the potential and the opportunity to immediately put this into practice in our lives. This is an opportunity for change. And the cross that our Christ died on and the empty tomb from which he raised has provided the grace necessary for us to live out what we find in Matthew chapter 6. We actually can live out righteousness in a way that will bring eternal reward. We were unable to do so before Christ. It's an opportunity. It's a, it's a potential. It's a desirable future. And yet it also serves as an exposure, doesn't it? To what has been our practice. What has been our sinful pattern. It exposes us to our motives. The Word of God, as His Spirit who lives within you, applies it to your own heart, exposes areas where you are living in hypocrisy. That is not what the kingdom is about. Furthermore, in conclusion, those who live 
lives that are just marked by this hypocrisy as the standard of their living will only receive a temporal reward and their eternity will be one of punishment. There are those who would associate with the kingdom. They hang out by the fence of the kingdom. They stand there. They eat across the fence. They may even shake hands with those who are in the kingdom. But their external righteousness is just that. It is mere externalism. It's form only. It has no power. And as much as they attempt and drive after obedience, they are earning no merit because they are not striving after obedience in faith in the finished work of Christ. And brothers or sisters, this morning our hearts ought to break for such people and we ought to examine our lives and make our calling and election sure. And if you're here this morning, no matter how closely you've associated with God's people, allow me to challenge you to examine your life and if you have never come to the end of yourself, set aside your sinful way and turned in faith to Jesus Christ, do so today. Today is the day of salvation, and if you will believe, if you will turn and place your trust in Him and in Him alone, as your substitute to stand in and take the full punishment of God on the cross, to raise from the dead and provide life for you, so that you might live as if you lived His life, died His death, and were raised again. If you'll place your confidence in that substitute, God will, in fact, bring the character change that we see in Matthew 5, 3-10. through And these realities will come from a heart that has been changed, not from human effort, which will result in only a temporal reward. Finally then, the righteousness of the kingdom in the sinner saint, which is the majority of us I trust this morning, comes with a very real danger. So let's set our course. Let's set our course for eternal reward, not for the temporal Let's set our course for worship together in public and public opportunities to display righteousness before others. Let's set our course to do those things, not to be seen by others, but so that others might see Christ lived out in us. May we be praying as we do them, God, receive the glory. I do this in dependence upon the cross. You say, how do I do this? How do I, how do I know if I'm doing this? One of the ways that you can battle that you can fight for obedience in this danger, is to fight for a cross-centered life. A life that is focused constantly on the gospel. That at every opportunity we are falling back in faith and dependence on the grace that is ours through Christ. So that all that we do is done for His glory and His renown. So that our lives at the end of the day are not all about what people remember about us or what they remember us doing or all the good deeds that they saw us do or whether we were on our knees or sitting in the prayer room. It's about the glory of Christ because they saw a sinner who was transformed and the transformation grew legs and arms and it lived right in front of them. And so they saw Christ. And when we spoke the gospel, it had a life connected to it that reflected the glory of God. That's our prayer. That's our desire. That must be what his kingdom citizens are after. This is the danger. Christ has warned us, and he has supplied every means necessary for us to live out the wisdom that is presented to us in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1.